Asia Pacific currents. News and labour issues from the Asia Pacific region. We strongly condemn the, the police that arrest、uh, the protesters. Saturday mornings at nine o'clock on Community Radio 3CR. All groups of the world should unite to fight this greedy capitalist. Brought to you by Australia Asia Worker Link. Good morning and welcome to Asia Pacific Currents. This Saturday, the eighteenth of August. This is Community Radio Three CR. I'm Giselle Hannah, taking you through to nine thirty. Of course, a thank you to Annie McLaughlin for another Solidarity Breakfast Show, and the song she went out with this morning was, of course, the、um, late Aretha Franklin with、uh, "Respect." So,、um, of course,、uh, she passed away in the last couple of days, and、um, tributes have been pouring in the Queen of Soul,、um, and that was an、uh, incredible song. I'm glad that Annie played it this morning. So coming up on Asia Pacific Currents today, a slightly unorthodox show. We're going to hear from last week. We talked to you about the anniversary, the seventy-third anniversary of the atomic bomb being dropped on both Hiroshima and Nagasaki. We we commemorated that anniversary in the last couple of weeks. I spoke with、uh, an activist, Shami Yun.、Um, she's based in Aotearoa, New Zealand, but she is of、um, her family、uh, originates from Nagasaki.、Um, and I spoke with her about what is happening in relation to the anti-nuclear campaign and the workers' movement in Japan. Just to remind listeners, on the sixth of August in nineteen forty-five. An atomic bomb was dropped on Hiroshima by U.S. air forces. It was the first time a nuclear weapon had ever been used on people. The fireball created by the bomb destroyed 13 square kilometers of the city, and up to 180,000 people died in the immediate aftermath of the dropping of that bomb. Three days later. A second bomb was dropped on the city of Nagasaki, killing up to 100,000 people immediately. Long after the bombing, survivors suffered from increased susceptibility to leukemia, cataracts, and malignant tumors, other cancers. The health effects have been wide、uh, and tragic, and further thousands upon thousands of people were killed in the years after 1945. The Hibakushu, who are the survivors of the bomb, have been at the forefront of the international campaign to have nuclear weapons banned. And today, fifteen thousand nuclear weapons still threaten the survival of the world. So, as I said, and as we promised last week, we would bring you an interview about this. It's in two parts, and it will be what we talk about for the whole show. Show me Yun. Is a member of the International Socialist Organisation. She's also an active member of the Secondary Teachers Union in Aotearoa, New Zealand. As I said, her family originates from Nagasaki in Japan. Here is Shomi Yun. Well, I think、um, anti-war, anti-nuclear sentiment is still very, very strong in uh, Japan um, for all the reasons. Um, Not, not at least because、um, you know Japan,、uh, Nagasaki, and Hiroshima were the two、uh, cities to be bombed.、Um, but in particular for Nagasaki, I think it is very、um, still very current.、Um, and、uh, Shiroyama, which is the school that was、uh, the closest to the epicenter, it's also the school that、um, I went to as well in Japan. 
um, there is huge commemorations where um, survivors come to the school and, you know, most of the survivors are um, um, uh, average age, you know, mid-80s now. Um, so they are very keen for um, the future generation to know of their stories, to know of their hardships and to um, for the future generations to, to retell those stories. So I know... Uh, my old school is, is trying to take on that mantle of retelling and keeping alive um, those stories for um, for the survivors and for future generations. There's still a lot of, um, I think, uh, for um, hibaksha, the, that's the term that's um, used for people who were um, affected by the bomb, who were, who were bombed. Um, you know, there is still ongoing um, health ramifications uh, whether it's as cancer, uh, but not not only for those people who were directly affected, but um, the the next generation that's come as well um, have had um, been plagued with um, health uh, effects. So that's been something that that's been an ongoing uh, battle and challenge uh, for Hibaksha to gain recognition of that um, and to win some kind of um, support and compensation. And when I use the term hibaksha, it's a Japanese term, but of course um, there were Chinese, there were interned Koreans who were living in both Hiroshima and Nagasaki that have been affected by this as well. So I think that that, that um, recognition and the fight for hibaksha is, is not just a Japan struggle, but it's, it's much broader than that. So I think in all of those ways, yeah, the memory is still, um, still current, and I think it's still something that is... Uh, People are still fighting for recognition. Well, today there are some 15,000 nuclear weapons still threatening the survival of the world. And this is amidst a global anti-nuclear campaign. You know, so you were talking about there still being a very, very dominant anti-war sentiment in Japan and in lots of parts of the world. What are the, what are the current activities in Japan against the nuclear industry and against war? I think to to trace the um, it's it's a long arc. I mean, there has been from 1945 onwards um, a very strong um, anti-war sentiment. And in Japan, there is a constitution, a clause within the constitution, um, Article Number Nine, which um, Japan has renounced um, uh, constitutionally um, uh, to 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 go to war. Um, and so with that enshrined, it's very controversial because the current Prime Minister Shinzo Abe has made it one of his campaign and has managed to change what it means to be um, to renounce war. And so they have made it now that the Japanese military, which um, they call themselves self-defence force, can... Um, uh, as their name suggests, only ever be used in self-defence. Now, Shinzo Abe has changed that in his uh, reign to include that they can go and support other military interventions. Um, however, that has always been, there's been the two pillars, I suppose, of um, anti-nuclear as well as um, anti-war sentiments tied together. So um, uh, there's been recently, especially after... Um, the 2011 um, uh, Fukushima um, Daiichi nuclear meltdown, um, there's been a huge uh, 
re-energising and refocusing of a uh, new generation of people um, wanting to um, halt all nuclear um, activities, whether that's nuclear weapons or whether that's even nuclear power. Um, and that has led to this massive re-energisation, I think, of of um, nuclear um, campaigns. Um, and I know in 2012 this is going back a bit, but there were you know weekly protests outside um, Parliament to demand an end to nuclear energy, and people making that connection between well, nuclear energy isn't this just you know a political um, thing it can actually be connected to and used for um, nuclear weapons as well um, and they I mean we're talking about numbers of hundreds and thousands um, so by by far the, the biggest um, the biggest social movement that we've seen in Japan in the past few decades um, now obviously bringing it to 2018 those um, those movements haven't continued um, and I think one of those reasons is um, the, I suppose, the demoralisation that people felt with uh, the election of Shinzo Abe, a prime minister who was openly for nuclear uh, power, who was openly for changing the constitution, um, and particularly Article Nine, so that um, self-defence force could be used for wars. Um, and I think that that brought this um, huge kind of um, resignation and demoralisation within the movement, but I don't think that those kind of, uh, I suppose, the lessons that you learn from mass movements and those kind of uh, things have gone away, um, and uh, even with um, uh, the recent commemorations, one of the things that, I mean, Japan is, you know, it's, it's known for its kind of conformism, if anything, um, however, um, even at uh, this commemoration, the Nagasaki mayor um, made a point of criticising Shinzo Abe for his um, uh, uh, capitulation and um, uh, to to uh, and pressure to to the United States, um, calling out his hypocrisy for not uh, signing up to the UN treaty on the prohibition of nuclear weapons, something that was. Um, passed uh, through the UN last year. Japan has not signed up to it. Um, and so there is still this very raw and strong uh, sentiment there. Um, and I think it would be a matter of, um, oh, well, you don't want to speculate, but, you know, is it going to take another um, nuclear power reactor meltdown uh, like we saw in Fukushima? Because they are in the process of... Um, restarting a lot of them. Not all of them are back up and running again, um, but um, there are definitely, um, some of them are going back up live, especially with um, Japan's um, current um, heat waves now. And I think that um, it, it's a ticking time bomb in that respect. I mean, an earthquake-ridden volcanic island nation with nuclear reactors up and down its country um, yeah, it's 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 a ticking time bomb, and I think the the fact that just you know um, five six years ago we had this huge um, anti-war rally, uh, sorry not anti-war anti-nuclear rallies. I think that that's going to be something that um, is only is going to be uh, I suppose the 
um, the foundations, it's laid the foundations for something that um, hopefully we'll see the resurgence of again. Well, I mean, you've talked about the relationship between the anti-nuclear movement and, of course, Fukushima, and that's what was happening in 2012. There was the spark for that increased movement and linking nuclear energy to nuclear weapons and the propensity to um, or the potential to use this for war, for destruction. But looking at Fukushima, looking at the energy industry, the nuclear energy industry, I mean, this directly impacts workers whose health is at risk. And that was, those were some of the stories we heard coming out of Fukushima. Well, what role is the Japanese labour movement playing in the anti-nuclear campaign? Yeah, I mean they've been um, they've been uh, huge backers of the anti-nuclear movement, um, particularly. Um, the, I mean, these three big kind of trade union uh, federations in Japan, um, and then Roden um, and then Kyoren, uh, two of the smaller but still significant um, trade unions. They've been they've been um, huge uh, proponents and supporters. Of the anti-nuclear um, uh, movement, um, and contributed to some of the successful um, turnouts um, um, to the process um, by encouraging their members to get along, by um, promoting it, um, by speaking at it um, at, the, at the big rallies, um, and, and more recently, I mean, they've been. Um, They've been active and vocal in talking about the situation for particularly migrant workers who are now the ones that are um, getting paid a pittance um, to clean up the mess um, uh, post Fukushima. And so the unions have been very uh, um, active um, in, in, in that. Um, it has to be said, though, that I think the biggest trade union um, confederation, um, Lengo, um, they're closely connected to the um, the Democratic Party in Japan, and, and unfortunately, I mean that there has been a bit of a, um, I suppose, a muted um, uh, response from them. Um, uh, they have been um, supporters of the um, um, nuclear uh, power industry um, on on the on the basis of the you know the, the they're a big kind of um, employer and a lot of their members are uh, in this industry. Um, so their, their, um, their voice um, for this has, has definitely been split. Um, I wouldn't say that haven't, they've been silent on this. There has been um, you know, a number of people, prominent people within Dengo who've spoken out against it. But yeah, I think uh, it has to be said that it's been uh, slightly muted from them. It is 17 minutes past nine o'clock here on Community Radio 3CR. You're listening to an interview that I did with Shomi Yun. Um, she's a member of the International Socialist Organisation and an active member of the Secondary Teachers Union in Aotearoa, New Zealand. Her family originates from Nagasaki, that's where she grew up as well. We're talking about the 73rd anniversary of the dropping of the atomic bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. You are listening to Asia Pacific Currents here on Community Radio 3CR. And we're going to go to the second part of that interview. I do want to look more broadly at um, 
the nuclear industry and particularly weapons and um, what leaders in the world are doing in this space, but particularly, you know, staying in the Korean Japanese peninsula area. We recently, so we saw a deal being brokered between uh, Donald Trump and Kim Kim Jong-un in relation to the use of nuclear weapons, firstly. um, And also, I think we can all accept that that deal has broken down. So firstly, what was the agreement that uh, happened? Why has it broken down? And was it ever likely to succeed? Yeah, I mean, I suppose I'm... I I, I think that I'm not so much... uh, pessimist on this in the sense that if we think back to um, before the deal was brokered, I mean, Trump's rhetoric was what he was going to bring, fire and fury upon the peninsula. Um, uh, you know, another or an exacerbation of the ongoing war that's um, affected the Korean peninsula. And there has been a back down, a welcome back down, um, from that being the solution to uh, what was going to be meted out to Kim Jong-un. So I think we do need to kind of take it back a little bit uh, before we start kind of criticising the shortcomings of the deal. But it has to be said, I mean, this is always going to be a long uh, a long game in the sense that, um, I mean, the biggest threat in my mind to the peninsula is still the United States and still their... Um, uh, their huge nuclear armament. Um, And so the deal of making North Korea a nuclear-free zone or um, getting them to give up all their nukes, you know, is always going to come under the charge of hypocrisy when it's the country that has the largest number of uh, nuclear weapons, the country that is the only country that's actually used those nuclear weapons um, that is um, telling uh, North Korea to give up their own nukes. Um, and I think you can see from Kim Jong-un, his calculation has, is one of um, protecting their own country um, in the sense that, you know, in, um, he only has to look at his father's reign um, to see um, the success of what having uh, nuclear uh, capabilities has meant, where, you know, Within his reign, he saw the invasion of Iraq. Um, in his father's reign, he saw the invasion of Iraq um, based on um, what you know we all knew at the time, bogus um, claims of weapons of mass destruction. Um, and the same fate did not meet uh, the North Koreans um, precisely because Kim Jong-il, his, um, Kim Jong-un's dad, um, realised that this was actually a bargaining, a powerful bargaining and deterrent. Um, for for um, the US. And so, I mean, Kim Jong-un, I think that will definitely be in the calculations of what he's thinking, that if he um, keeps his um, uh, nuclear capabilities up, that is actually going to be um, something that prevents uh, a war. You talked about Moon Jae-in um, and his pro-peace position, which is also a part of his... Um, wanting to uh, talk about reunification. Let's not forget about that very important piece. Um, and But also his particular attacks on the Labor movement. So how do you 
consider the attacks on the labour movement with reunification, with the brokering of the peace deal to try to um, uh, stop the use of nuclear weapons. But you also correctly, in my view, um, characterised his politics as liberal. So where does this leave us internationally and what is the, I guess, the end game of liberalism versus what the South Korean labour movement is fighting for? And that brings me really to my next question, which is where is the North and South Korean labour movements on the question of reunification but also on the question of disarmament or ending of the nuclear industry, whether it's weaponry or energy? Mm, yeah. Um, I think I think the, um, I suppose liberalism in my mind is always determined or limits, the limits of liberalism is, is, is in some ways the limits of what the social movements and the labour movements will allow. So, um I don't think that there's this kind of one hidden fast moment of like that's liberalism, that's not liberalism. I think that there's the the um, strategies and tactics within liberalism can kind of change, and the goalposts can change, which is why, yeah, it's 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 a kind of um, difficult to to pinpoint what 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 is and what isn't. Um, the point of that is that we can um, Sorry, Moon Jae-in has um, come from is of, is obviously on the back of um, huge industrial revolt and strikes um, and you know huge movements against his um, the the previous um, uh, South Korean president um, Park Geun-hee and I mean she was essentially ousted by the huge social labour unrest. Um, that uh, that erupted in um, South Korea, um, and we saw you know hundreds and thousands of people coming up, um, um, you know, it's, and you know closing down um, industry and, and going on strike uh, against the, the restructuring um, and against I think the the um, particularly the the, the the anger was against um, the inaction um, that the government, um, uh, yeah, the total inaction of the government after the the ferry um, killings, where you know three hundred people uh, were killed, and um, largely it was the effects of neoliberalism. You know, um, all of those stories that we hear familiar in the West, where um, uh, you know, workers' safety, um, uh, workers' uh, rights have been eroded so much that um, you know infrastructure is actually is actually not safe. And all of those stories came out with um, with the with the fairy um, uh, tragedy, um, and it was reaching such a national, I suppose, political uh, um, juncture where you know Park Geun-hye had to. Um, ended up sending riot police on grieving families um, to try and stop this kind of uh, movement. So I think that's the backdrop of how um, Moon Jae-in has come in. And so he's, yes, he's he's considered the, the peace um, uh, uh, broker and he wants reunification 
with uh, North Korea, but it's yeah, we have to be clear that it, it's it's on capitalist lines. It's on lines that um, he's hoping to get Trump's support. So he's gone out of his way to be very um, flattering towards him um, to try and make this a deal that um, Trump could um, potentially swallow. Um, and he's he's always talked about wanting to stay under the influence, under the protection of um, the United States. So I don't think um, Moon Jae-in has at all, you know, um, yeah, I mean, the limits of how much he can get away with pushing that kind of rhetoric and um, um, limiting workers' rights um, will be, I think, down to the power and the confidence of what the social movements will allow him to do. Um, that said, I mean, you know, since coming in, he has raised the minimum wage and, you know, he's done a few things like that. Um, so there's, yeah, there's, he's he's still, uh, you look at the polls, he's still quite popular um, um, within within the population. The real turnaround that I've been um, quite surprised by, I mean, for, for a number of years now, um, a lot of the new generation from South Korea, the, the um, Reunification has seemed um, less and less, well, yeah, less and, more and more remote, um, and less and less of it is a genuine possibility. But I think what um, Moon Jae-in has achieved to do, as well as um, Kim Jong-un, has been to um, make this normalisation a possibility, uh, yeah, a possibility again. Um, and I know immediately after the meeting between Kim Jong-un and um, Moon Jae-in, um, you know, the, the polls suggested that young people were taking note of um, <clears throat> uh, Kim Jong-un uh, of North Korea for the first time, um, which was quite a turnaround from even just a year before that. So I think that that's something that kind of come up um, as a possibility. But yeah, I mean, I think that there's, there's real limits there um, in terms of um, Moon Jae-in's um, politics as to how far and how much he's going to be able to um, push for um, genuine change. And I think a lot of that is, also, is that how much he pushes for is actually going to be on the back of or um, whether we're going to see a resurging <coughs> um, trade union um, labour movement again, like, like we saw under... Um, um, under Park Geun-hye, um, that ousted, ousted the previous government. That was Shomi Yuan, a member of the International Socialist Organisation and an active member of the Secondary Teachers Union in Aotearoa, New Zealand. Her family originates from Nagasaki in Japan. That's where she's from and where she grew up. Uh, and we were talking about the, amongst other things, the anniversary of the dropping of the atomic bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. That is all we have time for on commu- on Asia-Pacific Currents here on Community Radio 3CR. Thanks for tuning in. We'll be back next Saturday with more news and current affairs from the Asia-Pacific region. But stay tuned because coming up next is Palestine Remembered. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.